Please follow along now as I read from Romans 1, verses 8 through 17 this Lord's Day. Now, last week we covered verses 1 through 7 and also verse 17. So we kind of go back and then go forward again. Reading from the ESV, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, meaning the known world of the day, of course. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now let me just stop there and say that, as I mentioned last week, the church at Rome was at this stage, around A.D. 50 or so, largely a Gentile church, not completely, but largely so. Previously, the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, and so that depleted the numbers of Jews who followed Jesus and became Christians. But at any rate, let's continue verse 14. I am under obligation, Paul says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Note that phrase, I'm not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or faith for faith, as it I think not properly says here in the ESV. Faith to faith is a better translation. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there ends the reading of God's infallible word. I want you to look again at verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the kingdom message. And as I tried to sort of emphasize verbally in the reading, this word, not ashamed, or that word ashamed, is is an interesting one. It's the translation episkunomai from the Greek. In almost all English translations, they have it read that way. But in my opinion, and that's all it is, I think the better translation here would have been, I'm not embarrassed. Can we agree that there is a difference in degree between being ashamed of something in contrast to being embarrassed? Any of you who have been in our services for the past several weeks know that, uh, that I have done a few things in the pulpit that, frankly, were embarrassing to me. Now, I'm going to talk about things that embarrass me. I think you'd rather me do that than things that embarrassed you. If you remember, a few weeks ago, I was preaching away, and all of a sudden, my Apple Watch started talking to me. I had to stop and make it be quiet. Then just last week, I made a a gesture here in the pulpit, and I I knocked my notebook with my sermon manuscript all the way down there on the floor. I had to go down from the pulpit and go pick it up. It was embarrassing. But as embarrassing as something like that is, it's not exactly shameful, you know? But there is one thing above all others about which we must never be ashamed or embarrassed, and that is the message of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, what can a man give in return for his soul? And then he said, for whoever is ashamed, and yes, it's the same Greek term as before, 
Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, the kingdom message is so important and our king is so worthy that our testimony should never be silenced because we feel somehow self-conscious or embarrassed. Now, I'm going to guess that if you're like me, you know you don't have to drive too far from home or watch too much TV to see that we live in an age where many people have no sense of shame or embarrassment by the way they talk, the way they act, and the way they dress. We live in a society where uh, sex and vulgar language appear before the eyes of everyone, including our children, at every turn. And yet there are some of us, we as members of God's family, who worry about offending other people by talking about the message of the gospel. But we must not do that because, friends, the time has now come for God's people to be bold and unwavering. Peter, in one of his epistles, I think it's in 1 Peter, speaking possibly to the Christians here at Rome while he was there, facing severe persecution, told them, it is time for the judgment to begin. And if it's going to begin, let it begin in the household of the Lord. We must not step back. We must be bold and unwavering. The time has come for us to stand firm upon the law of God and make it with no reservations our testimony. One man for whom that was true, I mentioned last week, was our great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. His study of the book of Romans had a powerful impact on his life and in in turn a powerful impact on the entire world. Listen to what he said after a deep study of Romans 1. He said, I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. My friends, may we have a confession in that way as we study through this book together. Let us continue in this study and let us, by God's grace, endeavor to be less discouraged by what we see in this world and become less intimidated, less embarrassed, and not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Let me ask you, have you ever been to uh, you know, a conference or maybe it was a special church service where there was a guest speaker, guest lecturer, and uh, he was being introduced, he or she was being introduced, and the MC comes to the mic and says, you know, we're very glad to have so-and-so with us. They need no introduction. And then, of course, they usually go right ahead and introduce them anyway with a list of plaudits and, and praises. Now, that's how introductions usually begin. But as we see here, not so with Paul. And let's remember that he's written this letter to people he's never met. Think about that, especially when you read his loving caring words to them. I long to see you. He's never even met them before, and they're mostly a bunch of Gentiles. This is the first thing they heard ever from him. They never met him. He's never met them, and this is what they hear from him. They don't hear from him, oh, uh, 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 I've studied at all the major rabbinical schools. I've planted seven churches with dozens of letters I've written to others. No, 
the first thing he says by way of introduction is what? I am a slave to Christ Jesus. He doesn't even say, like you, I'm a citizen of Rome. No, he says, I'm a slave to Jesus and an apostle, a messenger of his kingdom. Let me ask this question to all of us. What does it really mean for us that, that we say we are Christians? Well, I think, among other things, we are implying that we have regular membership or attendance at church. But you know something, for many evangelical Christians, and maybe other types of Christians, I don't know, it means for them <clears throat> that they go to church because the church service starts at the right time. It's the right time of morning, it's not too early, it's not too late. I recall many years ago uh, in the city where Michelle and I lived in North Carolina before we went to seminary, there was in that town a prominent mainline type church that majored in this very thing about the starting time. There was not far from that church a very popular buffet restaurant where many of the members liked to have their Sunday lunch. Now, I heard this at the time we lived there, and I, act, I verified it. I didn't believe it when I first heard it. The leadership of that church structured their services so as to end every Sunday morning promptly at 11.30 a.m. so the people could empty out of the church, get in their cars, and drive to that popular restaurant without having to stand in line or be among the crowds. That's what being in church means for some people. For other people, going to a specific church means that it's their kind of music there, or it has a comfortable seating arrangement. That's what it means to be a Christian for many people today. It means for them the bulletin is easy to read. Well, there's Wi-Fi available. The sermon isn't too long, and they don't talk much about tithing and money. But for Paul, it meant something very different indeed. And chiefly, it meant that Jesus Christ is in charge. This is about Christ, Paul is saying. It's not about me. And I am wholly given over to what he desires. Look again at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And then he says, set apart. Aphorismenos in the Greek, set apart for the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I mentioned that Greek word for set apart. It's derived from a root word, horizo from which we get our English word, horizon. And I find that's an interesting uh, intersection or coincidence, if you will, that he uses a term that, I, and that then and now we would understand to mean that here is where the plane of the earth ends and the edge of the sky begins. I think Paul is saying that in terms of his walk with the Lord and his call, that's how it is and went for him. It's like a horizon an intersecting point. So based on what Paul says here, let me suggest that we take away the following three main things. First of all, there's good news about and of Jesus Christ the Lord. But then secondly, Paul also says that what happened in and through Jesus was part of a predestined plan of God from the beginning. Notice he says in verse 2 that this was spoken of beforehand. By the prophets, he means men like Micah, Isaiah, and Daniel. It was the plan from the very foundation of creation. Paul is neither embarrassed nor ashamed because the gospel message doesn't stand or fall based on his qualifications. And I don't think 
our modern evangelical churches have ever understood this. Because their churches, they want to be like, you know, the, uh, the latest shopping mall or the latest Starbucks location. But Paul's example for us is totally opposite from theirs. We aren't necessarily supposed to be impressive. We aren't expected to be perfect. Paul's message is that none of that matters because the Lord God is moving his kingdom forward. But let me tell you, there's another side to this being not embarrassed. The arrival of the kingdom of God means that things cannot be the same for any of us anymore. Now, if you hear me say that, and you're scratching your head and say, uh, well, when did this kingdom arrive, Pastor? I must have missed that. Well, I guess you did if you have to answer, uh, ask that question. The kingdom arrived with the birth, life, killing, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives cannot go on the same way because the message of the kingdom radically alters everything. And I mean from the standpoint of humanistic man and his society. A pastor I was listening to not long ago, he said that many Christians are what he liked to call Sunday submarines. On Sunday morning, they surface to read their Bibles, go to Sunday school, sing a few hymns. But then around noon, they dive back into hiding for the next six days. And maybe this is what makes us embarrassed to be aggressive about the message of the kingdom. It's the idea that there is no hope in ourselves or in our agencies or in our governments. That doesn't play well with our society today and people that we interact with because that's exactly where their hope is. You are your own savior, your own God. Turn to the government. Turn to the local agencies. They will help you out. Now, we want to be part of something that's a little more popular, accessible, a little more familiar. But the truth is, the status quo, that is more of the same thing, that isn't going to work. God's law is not a status quo, keep everything as it is now solution. The kingdom message of Jesus is something totally different. And friends... We and all serious followers of Jesus, we need to say to the larger world, loud and clear, in all humility, we will not be like you. Our precedent for that was set many, many centuries ago. We read it in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 18. We studied this when we went through that book. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Tell King Nebuchadnezzar, the most terrifying and powerful ruler on earth at the time, we will not serve your gods, and we will not bow down and worship your idols. Throw us in the fiery furnace, no problem, but we will not bow down to your gods. You see, if we are truly followers of Jesus, we have been changed by something stunning and overwhelming. We have crossed over into a new creation because the old has gone for good. Now, of course, we live in a time when the enemies of God, I mean, this has been going on for since time began in many ways, in a manner of speaking, but especially here in this early 20th, 1st century the enemies of God, they're trying to create their own version of it. Something new, something overwhelming. The old ways, meaning the Christian ways as they've understood them, are gone. And good riddance to them, that's their attitude. 
they will find out soon enough. They are doomed never to defeat the message of God's kingdom. But then thirdly for us, it also means that we who are the unembarrassed, we must proclaim this very thing that is the absolute victory of the kingdom message of our God and his law. And as I have said before, I think that's, what, that's what's missing in, in our witness and testimony today. We've set the bar far too low. We're not envisioning a saved world of the magnitude that God wants us to, even though that's exactly what our enemies are attempting to do. They have a vision of a world that marches to the tune of Satan's orders. And unless you've been asleep the past couple of years, they're coming very close to succeeding, at least in the short run. But for Paul, for Paul, the gospel was all about taking on long odds and big challenges. I mean, after all, he wants to go to Rome and do his ministry. I think the man probably had a good idea that if that opportunity ever came and he was able to take advantage of it, that would be the last place on this earth that he would be doing ministry for the kingdom. Now, we do know that Paul got to Rome, but let's be reminded of how he got there. He had been imprisoned by the Jews. He'd been thrown in jail by the Jews in Jerusalem. And when a new Roman government official, the procurator, Festus, arrived on the scene, as would have been the custom, Paul's judicial case was brought to him, to his attention. Now, at this point, he doesn't know anything about Paul, except he's a loudmouth that, that the Jews are screaming for his blood. And in Acts 25, we read of what happened. Paul says to Festus, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to there that is the Jews' charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now I'm going to stop the reading right there and just say I'm sure at that point Festus must have been dumbstruck. He probably didn't even know. Maybe he did, but I'm guessing he didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen. But when he heard Paul say that, he knew good and well. But it says... Festus then conferred with his counsel, who probably confirmed to him, yes, indeed, he's a Roman citizen. And Festus says to him, according to Acts 12, 25, 12, to Caesar, you have appealed, as is your right, to Caesar, you shall go. Now, in order to put that in some context, friends, wanting to go to Rome might today seem like a solo pastor or evangelist wanting to go to a place like Seattle or Chicago, or New York City, in all of their filthiness and ugliness and, and violence and crime, I'm, I'm talking about today, not 50 years ago. And as we know, in that day, Rome was the seat of extraordinary human power. It was governed by the evil Emperor Nero. One pastor I know of put it this way, going to Rome would not mean preaching to the choir. It would be preaching a sermon in front of a firing squad. But Paul wants to go there because he knows that Christians need not fear. Remember that popular slogan from a few years ago? No fear. That was Paul's slogan. That's because God is greater than anyone or anything. And then again, back in that verse 16, the kingdom message is the power of God unto salvation. See, he means that the church will assault and destroy the gates of hell because God has given her the power and the victory. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. 
Our power is resurrection power, ascension power, and dethronement power. And as you probably heard before in church, the Greek word translated power is the word dunamis or dunamis. It's a word that describes strength and ability and effectiveness. And let me tell you, friends, Paul bears witness to us today, right here, right now, that that power and through that power, we, like him, proclaim together without shame that, first of all, we are people of the covenant. And then secondly, we do so without embarrassment that no president, no senator, no judge, no CDC director outranks him. We proclaim that we stand for him, we live for him, and that our only hope is in him. He gives us the strength for the day and, and confidence both now and in the age to come. And this is directly related to that word we spent some time on last week, and we've heard again today, that word righteousness. Let's be reminded that our righteousness is related to God's power, the power that enables us to live according to his justice, his law. And that this is how we show love to God and to each other. There is no distinction between righteousness and justice according to God's word. But it all comes back to Christ offering himself to us, excuse me, offering to God, to himself to God for us. Offering himself as the sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. A justice that was aimed directly at us. But by his grace and mercy, he paid the price. Think of it this way. Imagine if you were driving around town here a few years ago, and you got a traffic ticket. Maybe you ran a stop sign, red light, I don't know. You got a traffic ticket a few years ago. And every time you drive down the road where that happened, it comes back to your mind and you feel guilty about having done that, that, that ticket you got. And so you go right down to that same courthouse and magistrate's office and you try to pay that fine again because you feel so guilty about it. Each time you'd show up in shame and you take out your visa card. But then the judge or the magistrate says to you, stop doing this, friend. Your debt has been paid. And so it is with us, beloved friends. We cannot pay anymore because our place at God's table has been secured. Friends, let us move forward even in these evil days. Let us do so because in Christ, God has accepted us. And there is no embarrassment in that at all. Let us pray.